Welcome to the Lightshine Church Podcast. I'm Rob Douglas, the organizing pastor of Lightshine Church, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. Friends, will you join me in prayer? And this prayer is going to come directly out of a prayer of Job. This is what Job prayed. He prayed, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Lord, meet us here in this time as we proclaim your word. May your spirit guide us into true wisdom. Amen. Well, to set the course of where we started last week in the book of Job, God and the Satan have this bet going on over the earth's most righteous man, Job. It's important to say this again, and if you were not with us last week, I would recommend listening to the opening message on the book of Job for a little more detail on what I'm going to say. But it's important to say again that this is not a historical account and that God does not gamble with human lives. Job is to be read as a parable, a parable that will teach us much about the suffering of innocent people. And so the accuser actually believes that if everything were to be taken away from Job, that Job would turn on God, that Job would curse God's name. He believes that we humans can only love God because of what God has done for us and the genuine relationship between God and humanity is impossible. God, of course, disagrees and God bets on Job. Everything was taken away from Job. Job was not in that land of milk and honey that Shay was just talking about. Job was in a very different place. He had lost his vast property and his wealth. He had lost his children. And in chapter two that we skipped over, Job lost his health. Loathsome sores appeared on Job's flesh from the soles of his feet to the tops of his head. It got so bad that Job's wife actually said to him, do you persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Job, however, insists that we must receive both the good and the bad from the hands of the Lord. And so Job persevered with his integrity still intact, a miracle under these conditions. Job's three friends had heard of the troubles that had befallen him. And so like any good friends would do, they journeyed to be with Job in his time of need in order to comfort him. Now we're going to try something new in the Uh, experiments we've been doing each week. We're about to try a little online poll. Dustin is going to attempt to bring this poll up. It is one question and it will take just a few seconds if it works. Is it going to work, Dustin? Here it is. How difficult is it for you to have to be with a family member or a friend who is really suffering? Is it easy for you to do? Is it challenging but doable? Is it extremely difficult or virtually impossible for you to do? We're curious. Just take a second and let's see where this comes out.
And then Dustin, when you're ready after a few seconds, let's see the results of this. All right, cool. Thank you, Dustin. It worked. <laughs> we got to do this more often. <laughs> so, yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. We're gonna we'll make this a regular thing. I kind of like it when Dustin appears out of nowhere like that. So we're going. That's, yeah, true. We'll find out. I'll bet they do. So going into these type of situations, we're putting ourselves in the shoes of Job's friends. So we just kind of said where we might, how we might feel about stepping into a situation like that. And so when we step into those situations, we're thinking, we're wondering, um, what do we do? Like, what are the right words that we're going to say to someone who's really hurting. And this is really difficult but important work that we all have to do for each other. For me, it's rarely easy. We're going to look at Job's friends. We're going to learn from them what we should and should not do when trying to comfort someone who is suffering. Job's friends arrive on the scene at Job's house and they see him from a distance but they did not recognize him. Once they realized that it was their friend Job, they raised their voices, they wept aloud, they tore their robes, they threw dust on their heads, and they sat with Job on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and not one word was spoken because Job's suffering was so great. Many years ago, I used to work with someone that is really a hero of mine and a mentor, the Reverend Dr. Charles E. Shields. Twice in my tenure working for Charles, he was forced into medical leave because of cancer. During his second leave, I hadn't seen him for about a month, and I ran into him at a Pete's Coffee down the street from the church. I happened to be standing directly behind him in line when he turned around to greet me warmly, as he always did. I looked right into his face. And when he said my name, I literally did not know who this man was that was greeting me and that I was looking at. I felt like I was quite literally looking into the face of the walking dead. And a very short while after that, Charles lost his battle with cancer. To see him like that was devastating for me. I walked back to the church in tears, embarrassed, because when I finally did realize who it was, I had no idea what to do or what to say. 
And fortunately for me in that moment, Charles, who's one of the most gracious people I've ever met in my life, was actually helping me in my embarrassed situation, helping me even in his dying. This experience has always stayed with me. I picture Job's friends like me seeing my mentor and boss, Charles, in a Pete's Coffee because this kind of suffering is shocking to us. But the most important thing about Job's seven days of silence was that he did not remain in it alone. A question that we always ask people discerning to start a new church gets at what we call a person's social base. We would ask a question like this. If you had a crisis at 2 a.m., do you have someone that you could call? And if so, who is that person? I'm curious as to how many of us could actually name a person or persons that we could call at 2 a.m. if we absolutely needed something. Someone that we could count on would actually pick up the phone, drop everything, or in this case, wake up and get out of bed and come help you. These three friends of Job's, these were his people that he could call at 3, 2 a.m. or whatever time if he needed them. Uh, there's a great essay on Job that was written by a woman named Ellen Davis. And this is what she said about this situation. She said that those seven days of silence are surely one of the most influential acts of pastoral care ever performed. So the Jews called this practice the sitting Shiva, literally the sitting seven where friends come over to the home over a period of one week to share in another person's grief. Here, the friends get it right. They actually enter into Job's suffering. In the same essay, Ellen Davis says that cultivating the habit of silence should be seen as one of the special responsibilities of Christian community in a noisy world. It's during these, like this entire week of shared silence with his friends that Job finally finds his voice. And when he finds it, he speaks all of his mind. He holds absolutely nothing back. We heard Chad's dramatic reading. He cursed the day he was born and he wished that he were dead. Job in Language reminiscent of Genesis 1 is trying to undo creation. When creation says, let there be light, Job actually says, let there be darkness. This was the reality of his situation. But believe it or not, it's actually meant to be seen as a step in the right direction. Because admitting pain does at least two significant things. It opens up a place for pain to do its work in our lives and then subside. The other thing it does is it's just an honest reflection of ourselves to God about how much we're really suffering. After Job finishes this tirade, his friend Eliphaz speaks for the three friends and the scene shifts from this beautiful pastoral care to speaking things that end up being untrue, unhelpful, and extremely painful. It's the speaking of words that things go drastically wrong. 
Perhaps the crowning blow to Job's bitter losses is the intolerance of his so-called friends. Out of seven days of silence, Job has formed these bitter words from somewhere deep within that sound a little bit reminiscent of the tantrum of a toddler. Job wants answers to all of his why questions. Why does he suffer like this? Why did God allow him to be born? Why can't God just let him die? Why has God made him a target? These are legitimate questions. And with them, Job has moved from complaining about God to now lodging his complaint directly to or at God. And this is what we call lament. It's one of our unique prayer languages. Now, how many of us will admit to knowing this? That expressing our grief, even our anger to God, could actually be considered prayer. To cry is to be human. To lament is to cry out as a human of faith. Job and his friends, they share a worldview that says that the universe operates according to a system where people reap what they sow. But what this book is insisting and what Job is insisting is that there's like Job is saying, there's a glitch in the system. He maintains this entire time that he's being punished unjustly, that he's this righteous man, and he is. His friends disagree with him. They presume to actually know the mind of God. They say that they know exactly what God is up to, and they tell their friend Job that God is disciplining and punishing him for sins that he obviously must have committed or he never would have been experiencing these calamities. One of my biggest discoveries from this text was that Job's friends are said to only talk about God. And that's why the storyteller says that their words can only bloom like cut flowers. <laughs> Think about that for a second. They may look good for a really short time, but not for long. And Job's rage is different. It's directed at God in the form of a prayer of lament. And the spoiler alert here is that God accepts Job's prayer of lament. God may even welcome or encourage it because to lament is to be honest about the things that are going on inside of us. I wonder how many of us have raged at God before in a prayer of lament. I suspect that more than a few of us. I also wonder how many of us have actually been taught not to rage angrily at God. Has this ever been modeled for us before? I wonder how many of us have raged that have raged at God have actually felt guilty or ashamed afterwards. I know that I have on this one. We must be able to give ourselves permission to grieve loss, to lament the things that cause us or the things that cause the world to suffer. We need to learn to take our complaints directly to the God who's big enough, who's loving enough, who's gracious enough to hold that space with us. 
And yet it's the end of the book of Job where God actually is furious with Job's friends because God says that they misrepresented God. While Job, who raged directly at God and put the blame on God, God actually says that Job was the one who had spoken faithfully, truthfully. Just spend a moment thinking on that. Job, in his raging at God, wasn't doing anything wrong. God gives Job permission to grieve his losses, permission to be angry. And we have to ask the question, is it possible that God is giving us that kind of permission too when we're hurting? Now to finish, I think we learn a few things about what it means to bring comfort to someone who's really suffering. Our role as comforter is not to solve the problem of pain. Often when someone is pain, we choose to just not show up because we don't always know what to do or what to say. Eliphaz, his friend, wanted to fix the situation. He wanted to solve Job's problems. He wanted to explain away the mystery when all he really needed to do was just be silent, just be with and listen. Love and listen. Those two things would get us pretty far in life. They certainly would today in this time of civil unrest. Love, listen, be with. We want so badly to make sense out of suffering. And what this parable does is it constantly resists the easy answers at every turn. I had this happen to me recently a few months ago. And Christians often say really difficult things to people who are hurting. I'm just going to share one example. Everything happens for a reason. Have we heard those words before? Maybe we've used those words before. Everything happens for a reason. My question is, is that really what the Bible teaches? Is that what Job is teaching us? That everything has an explanation if we can just look close enough and figure out what it is? There's a cancer survivor. Her name is Kate Bowler. She wrote an excellent book entirely based off of this phrase. Everything happens for a reason and all the other lies I believed. And she's a Christian. The book is outstanding. We say that everything happens for a reason or other things like it because it makes us feel better. But it sure didn't help Job when his friend said that to him. And it rarely helps those who are suffering. The words of Job's friends not only didn't help, but they were the things that push poor Job over the edge. We teach this to our kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know that this is well, even though well-intentioned, it is not true. Words hurt badly. It was the weight of words that crushed Job. The fascinating thing that I'm learning through the reading of this parable is that despite being immersed in 
pain and loss, Job is the one that's not stuck. His friends are stuck. His friends were standing in this quicksand of their own foolish and overly simplistic view of the universe and a God that rewards the good and punishes the bad. A theory, by the way, that if you think about the American church, what we call the prosperity gospel, this theory is still very much alive and well. But Job is here to teach us something different, that this is not how the universe works. It's not how God works. All of us will suffer loss. We'll all experience deep pain because we're human and because we risk suffering any time we choose to love greatly. But we see once again that even through his raging and excruciating pain, Job still continues to seek out and talk directly to God. Some choose to walk away. Some choose to talk about God. Job is showing us the right way to deal with it, to take our complaint directly to the source, directly to God. He takes his complaint to the God who could help him. And so maybe the question for us might be something like, do we take our pains, our grief, our anger, our laments, maybe personal or uh, laments of the world, and do we take those things straight to the heart of God in prayer? Or like Job's friends, do we prefer to simply talk about God? God seems to want honesty because no good relationship is ever built on lies. Job seeking after God, this is what drives him. This is what guides him through his pain. The idea of lament may be one of the Hebrew scripture's greatest gifts. When the time is right, I'm going to complain to God because this story is truly shaping me. It's forming me. It's giving me permission to be honest about the things that are going on inside me. And I hope that it does this for you as well. Will you pray with me? God, we trust that you're good even when we don't understand the whys. Help us to truly comfort those who are suffering. Give us permission without guilt or shame to bring our laments before you a God who loves us dearly and walks with us through the pain.